0: All right, turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 9. You know, many people live on a perpetual roller coaster when it comes to faith. And it's because they have become convinced that if God is going to love me, if God is going to accept me, if God is going to save me, then I have to be lovable. Then, then I have to be acceptable. Then, then I have to be savable. And, and people that think this way have tragically bought into what is essentially a false gospel called moralism. Moralism basically says that as long as you obey the rules, God will love you. Or as long as you're a good boy or girl, God will accept you. Or as long as you are worth saving, then God will save you. But unfortunately, rather than experiencing the joy and the peace and the contentment that Scripture promises to those who are in Christ When we've chosen to put our faith in ourselves rather than in Him, what actually comes is fear and anxiety and worry. Fear that I don't measure up and that I'm not good enough because the reality is, and I know this deep down, I can't and I'm not. The true gospel, though, tells a very different story, doesn't it? The true gospel says, You are lovable. You are acceptable, you are savable, but it's not because of anything you've done. It's also not because of anything you haven't done. Rather, you are lovable, acceptable, and savable, get this, because Jesus is lovable, acceptable, and savable. Or to put that another way, you are lovable, acceptable, and savable because God is righteous. And the righteousness of God through Christ is given to you as a gift, it's laid on top of you, and it is his righteousness, not your righteousness, as if you had any, that changes everything. So what if you could live in that true gospel place? Like what if your life was marked more by peace and joy and contentment than by things like fear and anxiety and worry? Because that's just like a hamster wheel of of striving and failing, of trying to get there and ultimately not making it. And then you feel like I have to project this facade, I have to project this false identity to my friends and my family and my church family that, oh, no, I actually do have it all together. I actually am lovable i actually am acceptable to god i actually am somebody who should be saved i'm worthy of that but that's not real and it's empty it's unfulfilling it's meaningless it's not true and it's ultimately idolatry because it's bowing down to the god of self rather than to the one who through his grace, through his sacrifice, can actually change your life. can actually save you. But the biggest threat is this. If we miss the true gospel, if we miss the righteousness of Christ, and instead place our hope in our own righteousness... We miss the whole thing. And we know that's true from a variety of places in Scripture, but today, the Apostle Paul essentially says, guys, this is exactly what has happened to many of my Jewish brothers and sisters. Romans 9, we're going to begin in verse 25. This will be on the screen. If you need a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back. Feel free to grab one. If you don't have a Bible, Bible, please keep it. Let it be our gift to you today. Romans 9, starting in verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call Beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, "'You are not my people,' there they will be called sons of the living God." And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, "'Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully.'" And without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Throughout Romans 9, Paul has been seeking to answer a central question, which is, if Jesus is the true Messiah... If this is really him, the one long foretold by the Jewish prophets to be coming from the royal lineage of King David, why is it that so many Jews don't believe it? And yet, so many Gentiles who knew nothing of prophecies and covenants and laws do believe it. If all this is true, then, then what's happening here? And Paul's answered this question in a variety of ways thus far, but the thrust of his answers has been this, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is not out of control. The things that are happening while they may grieve him are not surprises to him. He is all-powerful, and his will, as we've said, will be done. We don't always understand his will. We don't always see it fully, but it won't be thwarted. Our decisions don't change his will. Our lack of willingness to go along with him does not change his will. Our gospel reading this morning, the father that wants his sons to go into the vineyard and work, their decisions don't change his desire for them to go into the vineyard and work. So Paul wants us to know that God is in no way caught off guard by the unbelief of many Jews, even though Paul says it grieves my heart. And the belief of many Gentiles. And and, and then he reminds us that not only does this not catch God off guard, God has actually already spoken through the prophets concerning this situation. God told us this was going to happen. God told us this is what was coming. This is actually the fulfillment of prophecy. And Paul mentions several here in today's text. The first comes from Hosea, uh, chapters 1 and 2 of Hosea. The next comes from Isaiah. And the basic I- idea here is this. It has been prophesied that those who were not called chosen people, Gentiles, that those who were not called chosen people will come to be called chosen people. But then verse 27 That even though Israel was numerically large, which fulfilled prophecy that the descendants of Abraham would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. That's happened. Even though they're numerically large, only a, quote, remnant would be saved. And that God has left this remnant as offspring for Israel. Even though they didn't deserve it. Did you notice how he said, you've left us offspring, otherwise we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, meaning annihilated, just gone. It's it's not because somehow they were deserving of being saved by God. It's that God has been gracious. Because what do we all deserve? We've talked about this from the beginning of Romans. We deserve death, but God extends grace and mercy to us. So how is this? How is it that a people chosen by God, who had the law of God, how is it that they've missed the boat so dramatically, while a people who historically didn't have the law, didn't seek after God, have actually attained righteousness? How is this possible? The answer that Paul gives is faith. Paul says the Gentiles have not just attained righteousness. They haven't like attained a kind of righteousness that comes from within them. They've attained a kind of righteousness that comes to a person through faith. This isn't a righteousness that you can produce. You can't muster up this kind of righteousness within you. By how well you followed the rules. By how acceptable, lovable, savable you think you may have been. He says so many of the Jews, they've been pursuing self-righteousness rather than this faith-based, this God-given righteousness. Or to put that another way, they've been trying to become righteous through their own actions rather than accepting the gift of righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, that comes through submission to Christ. If you hear anything that I say today, hear this, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot produce any righteousness of your own Any righteousness that would in any way make you worthy of being loved, accepted, and saved by God. It's impossible. You cannot do it. You can be as good as you can be. You can be as moral as you can be. You can mow as many neighbors' yards as you want to. It's not going to buy you a ticket to anything. Again, he quotes Isaiah. Look at verse 33, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense Notice that this is the language of masonry. I'm laying a stone. I, I'm building something. I, I'm building a house. I'm, I'm building a wall. And I think this language should like draw our minds to all of this biblical language surrounding Jesus as the cornerstone, Jesus as the firm foundation, Jesus as the one on whom the wise man builds his house, as as the rock. For some, this stone that has been laying is the piece that supports the whole structure of life. Hopefully for many of us in this room, we can say that Jesus is that essential piece. My life doesn't make sense without him. My life doesn't matter without him. My life is meaningless. There is no truth. There is no hope. There is no joy. There is no peace. But, but this cornerstone, it supports the whole structure. Hopefully many of us can say that. It's the rock that we've built our house on. But yet for others who have not built their proverbial house with this critical piece in place, then it's just laying on the ground for them to trip over. And the integrity of the house has been compromised. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. As we read through this, though... Guys, we have to realize that the exact same thing is happening today. Like, this isn't just something we read about in the pages of Scripture. This is something very real and true and present in our lives right now. In the lives of our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers, our classmates. And for some, Jesus is this essential cornerstone. And for others, man, he He makes no sense. Like standing outside the church, trying to see what the stained glass window is all about. It doesn't make any sense. It's obscured to me. Like, like, it seems dumb. It seems like only a fool would like buy into any of this, unless it is the thing that everything is built on for you. For some, he is the cornerstone. For others, he is the stumbling stone. So how do we make sure that we are placing him, we're laying him in his place, the place where he holds all things together so that the integrity of our house is supported? I want to give you a few things today, a few thoughts. You are lovable, acceptable, and savable because God is righteous. Righteous. We said this, his righteousness is extended to us through the grace of Christ. And then a few other critical factors. First of all, we need to engage in some honest spiritual introspection. In other words, we need to look inside ourselves and ask who Jesus really is to us. It's like Jesus saying to Peter, who do you say that I am? Imagine Jesus saying that to you. Who do you say that I am? And then is that real for you? You know the right answer. You've grown up in church, grown up in this Bible-belty culture. You know the right answer here, but is that your truth? Is that the place that he holds in your life? He's either your cornerstone or he's your stumbling stone. There's really no in between there. Secondly, Paul says we need to be praying for the lost. Do you notice that? When we got into chapter 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's the prayer of somebody who is not self focused. It's also the prayer of somebody who recognizes that it's within God's power to save anyone. Are you honestly and earnestly praying for the lost around you, for, for your friends, for your neighbors, for your family members, for your children, for, for the people in your life who maybe have not expressed faith in Christ? With the people in your life you see, and it's like, man, you know, they, they kind of go to church every now and then, but there, man, there's no evidence that Jesus is their cornerstone. Are you praying for them? Those who are submitting to the cornerstone are praying for the lost. So do we need to declare and demonstrate the gospel to our neighbors around us, to our friends, to the people who we know who are lost, do we need to be sharing the truth of Christ with them? Do we need to be showing them what the truth of Christ is all about? Absolutely. But here's the reality. For many of them, it's not that they've never heard it. It's that they don't believe it. Right? It's not the gospel around here, man, is so commonplace. It's so ordinary in our culture. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, more than likely you've heard it. At some point, it's unremarkable. The problem isn't that you haven't heard it, the problem is that you don't believe it. Are we praying that the people around us would not only hear the truth of who Christ is, but that they would actually come to believe it? And then finally, we submit to God's righteousness rather than pursuing our own. Paul says that's the whole problem here. That's what I'm praying for ultimately. I right, bear them witness, they have a zeal for God. Man, it, it seems like they're really religious, right? They've got all these rituals. They've got all these holidays. I mean, Paul was a Jew. He knew. There's all of this activity going on. But it's not according to knowledge. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. I think a key to this is found in verse 4 of chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, it's not about you following a written code. It's not about you obeying the rules anymore. It's about you following a person. It's about making Jesus the orienting center of your life, seeking to learn him as his disciple so that you might emulate him, so that you might put his ways into practice in your life, submitting to him, not my will, but your will be done. Are we submitting to God's righteousness or are we off on this track of pursuing our own? Submitting to him, by the way, doesn't simply mean obeying him. It also means emulating him, like I said. It also means giving him what we have. It also means giving him what we have because whatever you have is ultimately from him. Think about the parable of the talents for a moment. Do you remember this parable? There's a master, a landowner. He calls three of his servants to himself. He gives them each a different portion of money. And then he tells them, I want you to go. I want you to buy and sell and trade with these resources that I've given you. And, and then I'm going to come back and I want to see what kind of return has come on those things. And, and the same thing is true with everything that you have in your life, just like that master called his servants to himself and then gave them these resources. Everything that you have is something God has given to you. So are you going to be surprised when he says, now I want you to give that back. I want you to use that in the way that I'm telling you to use it. When you submit to someone, you lay it all on the table. You say, everything that I have is yours. Remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Abraham finally has a son by his wife, Sarah. Like, it's taken forever. God's been promising this for a long time. They're ancient. They have a child. It's a miracle of science. Like, what has happened here? And then God says, now kill him. A lot of people read that story and go, well, God, it's just proof. God's just arbitrary and capricious. This doesn't make any sense. But the reality is is that this is a story about submission. Will you give God back what he has given to you because it's his anyway? It was his all along. And yet we think, no, it's mine. It's mine. This is my child. When we don't submit what we have, though, our actions are saying ultimately well i don 't trust you, even though this came from you i don 't trust you with it. Do me a favor, take out a pen and a piece of paper, or pull up the notes part of your phone I want you I want you to write down one thing that comes to mind as we talk through the things we have in our lives what's something that comes to your mind that you go man that's something i i just have not fully submitted to god i want you to just write that down and by the way for most of us myself included this should be really easy cuz chances are there's a myriad of things in your life one of the things we say all the time is that we are all unbelievers on some level right? They're all ways in which we struggle to trust. They're all ways in which we struggle to believe. None of us have perfectly submitted the whole of our lives to Christ. What's something that comes to your mind when we talk about submitting what you have that you go, man, that's just not, I don't want to, or I haven't. It could be a talent or a gift that God's given you, and you're just not using it for his purposes, could be material things that he's given you, and rather than using them for his glory, you've used them to increase your own sense of comfort or security. It could be an addiction that you have, but you like it. It could be your home, and you're just unwilling to be hospitable, to extend the love and mercy of Christ through the place where you live, It could be something in your bank account. It could be any number of things. What is it for you? What comes to mind for you? For Abraham, it was his son. And the ultimate act of submission on Abraham's part is also this ultimate step of faith. As he bound Isaac, as he laid him on the altar, and then as he raised the knife above him. In that moment, Abraham was saying, God, everything I have, everything I am is yours. It's yours. Paul said in Romans 4 that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Not because Abraham was good enough or moral enough. Not because he had produced righteousness of his own. He certainly did some sketchy things in his life. But his faith ultimately was not in himself. His faith was not in himself. Write down something that you haven't submitted to God and imagine yourself binding it, leading it up the hill, laying it on the altar, and then raising the knife. You are lovable, you are acceptable, you are worth saving because God is righteous. And his righteousness is seen in the fact, guys, that he bound his own son, he led his own son up the mountain, he laid him on the altar. And when the knife was raised, there was no alternative sacrifice as there was in the case of Abraham. There was no ram in the bushes. Why? Because Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus, in the words of Isaiah, was the one who was crushed for our iniquities. He was the one who was pierced for our transgressions. And listen, by his, what? Wounds. By his wounds, we are healed. We give everything because we serve a God who has given everything. Today... Raise the knife over something in your life that you have not fully submitted to him.